Okay, if you would, please turn or listen to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 14. I'll be reading Matthew 24, verse 14. Jesus said, This Gospel of the Kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus is King, is Savior, is High Priest. It is to the delight of all of us whom you have called to yourself to be under you, to be subjects of your rule, your reigning over our lives. For you have come, you have secured victory for us over all of our enemies and over our sin and over the power of sin. Oh, let the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, be seen this morning, loved all the more to the glory of your eternal reign. Amen. The church in America is in a crisis. And it's a crisis that has been created by the church in America. There are very many churchgoers who proclaim to be saved from hell and assured of heaven because they believe in Jesus. Because they have responded to the message that if you don't want to die and then someday have justice or judgment come upon you, those people are very conscious of, oh wow, I'm, I'm a sinner. If you, if you don't want that, well then simply ask Jesus to come into your heart. And He will. Even if you don't want Him to be king and ruler over your life. He'll save you even if you never give evidence that He is your Lord. Jesus can be your Savior without you ever being inconvenienced, that He'll come in and be a killjoy over what you really love. Your sin nature. The passions of your flesh. The world. I mean, it'd be great if you did make Him Lord, but in order to get to heaven, to have your sins forgiven forever, you don't have to. You can go on living according to the flesh laid out in Galatians chapter 5. And Paul, somehow he missed it there. 
you will inherit the kingdom of God anyway. That, what I just said, is what millions of American Christians have believed because it's been taught to them. The gospel's been watered down. Not really watered down, it's a bad way to say it. It's more like Paul would say in Galatians, it's become no gospel at all because of it's been gutted of so many of its internal organs of what this glorious gospel of grace and of the kingdom is. See, this watering down didn't just happen but it ultimately came from many fundamentalist, conservative Christians over the last 100 years. It is a crisis at its core of not understanding the gospel of the kingdom. This is week 26 in our series, God's Purpose in Redemptive history. And Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations. And then the end will come. And so the big question is, what is it? What is the gospel of the kingdom? Seems to me that the answer to that question is really important because Jesus says this is the gospel that we are to be preaching. It's the gospel we are to be living by. And so what I want to focus on, therefore, this morning concerning the kingdom is that aspect that Christ, as the King, He does reign over the lives of every person who is in the kingdom. He's Lord, He's King, and at the heart of being saved from your sin, from hell, and unto eternal life in the resurrection one day, it is at its core, we sinners coming to Jesus. Coming to the Lord, coming to the King. And thus, the idea that the gospel somehow means you can have Jesus as the Savior of your soul without Him ever becoming your Lord and ruler and commander is not only utterly wrong, but really dangerous. So this... Now, we plunged into the New Testament kingdom last week. Remember what we saw there. The kingdom came with Jesus. And it came in an unexpected way. It was here, present, all around you, according to Jesus. Fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. It was here. He brought the rule and the reign of God in a way it wasn't before. And yet, there are aspects of the promised kingdom that still remain to be fulfilled in the future or the consummation. So what we saw last week concerning the kingdom of God, 
that in the ministry of Jesus, it is fulfilled, it has come, and yet it's not yet in its consummation, waiting for one day. Now this morning, our focus is the focus that Jesus came to establish His reign. We're talking about the presence of the kingdom now, which has been here ever since His coming, and is here today. There is a kingdom, a realm, in which Jesus is reigning to save persons. To defeat the enemy and to reveal His glory to them. John the Baptist came on the scene and his message was, repent because the kingdom of God is right at hand. And all four Gospels agree that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. John was declaring that the kingdom of God was just right around the corner. It was one day he baptized his distant relative. And he pointed and he said, there's a Lamb of God. Then Jesus burst on the scene in His ministry, proclaiming, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And when Jesus said that, what He meant was that in an unprecedented way, the time has come for Almighty God to break into this world like He never has before to comfort His people, to awaken His people, to defeat their enemies. And this is called gospel. That the king would come to rule over in righteousness his people is the gospel. It is, gospel means good news. It's not good news for everybody. It is only good news for those who will repent and trust in this gospel. Trust in this God. And so what I want to do is I want to turn to one passage this morning in Isaiah chapter 52. And I want to focus on this passage that is quoted in the New Testament concerning the gospel. The gospel of Jesus. It's Isaiah chapter 52, 7. And I want this passage to help us understand what the gospel of the kingdom includes, not excludes. Paul quotes this passage in Romans chapter 10 precisely where he is referring to the gospel of Jesus that saves. The gospel of grace alone, through faith alone. 
And so as I read Isaiah 52, 7, listen carefully for the connection between the gospel and the kingdom. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news. Gospel. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Gospel. Of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Stop. Paul sees these are the heralds. The king has come. Here's his message. And they go out. And they're entrusted with the message. The gospel. The good news. And look what it says. Those persons, how beautiful are their feet, who say to Zion, God's people, here it is. This is the gospel. Your God reigns. That's the gospel. That's good news. If you're in the kingdom. Which means He's ruling you. He's reigning over you. The gospel of the kingdom of God that John the Baptist came to announce and be the forerunner of, that Jesus came to bring in and to be the fulfillment of, at its core, it is nothing less than your God, Yahweh, reigns. He rules, He commands, He governs you who are in His realm, the kingdom. To say that God reigns or the kingdom of God has come does not mean the obvious. God's God, He's sovereign, He's providential. We all believe that. God is overall, He's king. That's not what it means. That's true. But the kingdom of God and the announcement that your God reigns means something specific. He has come in the midst of the present evil world. And there is a kingdom of darkness, and He has brought the kingdom of light. It is at its core this new reign in a specific sense where He's revealing His glory, defeating His enemies, and saving persons from wrath and hell, and promising them what will come at the consummation, the resurrection of the dead, where perfect peace and righteousness will be established. That's a realm that's different than other realms that also exist. To say along with Isaiah, your God reigns, is virtually the same thing as saying the kingdom of God is at hand. It's virtually to say God will never be reigning over you this way. This is how Jesus said it to Nicodemus. Unless you're born again, 
Which is another way of saying the power of the kingdom, which is invisible, affects sinners and thrusts them into the rule and the reign of God. And so the gospel of the kingdom, it is the good news that in Jesus, God's kingly authority and power is breaking into this world like never before. And He is ruling in a new way to save His people from their sin. To deliver them from its effects and from its present power. To deliver them from the enemy, Satan and demonic forces over His people and to reveal His glory to them. In other words, so that he, the king, would reign over them. So let me just make a blanket statement. Jesus did not come to save anybody who doesn't want him to reign over them. He did not come to save persons who never come to that place of saying, I want you as my Lord. I am a sinner. I have desires, thoughts, and effects that are totally against what you say I ought to do. I hate that. Please be ruling through me and upon me. People that don't come to that supernatural change, experience, are not in the kingdom. They may be in the church, but they're not in the kingdom. They may be pastors, but they're not in the kingdom. The king said very clearly, and very plainly in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Doesn't mean you will be sinless. It doesn't mean you will never break a commandment. He's talking about the difference between before you came into the kingdom and after. After is, there are patterns of my life. There is a battle I didn't used to fight. Now I'm fighting it. And I find success in measure during this time where the present evil age still continues because the age to come in its consummation hasn't happened yet. There's evidence. I love him. And part of it is hating your sin. If you love me, the king, you will keep my commandments. This is the gospel of the kingdom. It's the good news that our God in Jesus reigns rules. And all throughout history who have come to Him, deep down, no one's looking. They love that. They love Him. 
And so there has been teaching. Let, let, let me, here's a way that, that I remember hearing it back in the 80s. Because, you know, I'm new, I'm trying to figure things out. And a, a large portion of evangelicalism, Christian people, were, were saying, well, you got to be very careful about the commands of Jesus because he sounds very legalistic and, you know, law there, you know. Read the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Seems to make it a little bit harder. <laughs> okay. Well, there's a solution. This is how it will go. Jesus came as the son of David, a Jew, the one prophesied about, the Messiah, the King. He is, and He came to Israel. In the early part of, take the Gospel of Matthew, up until about chapter 12 or 13, Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God to Israel, not to Gentiles. And then there comes the break where He's done with it because they have rejected Him. And now He goes on to something different. The Gospel of grace. That's how it got. Kingdom, you've heard it said, do not murder. I say unto you, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. Okay, no, 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 no. You, you, you get commandments, and even in the epistles, it's, it's, no, 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 it's not for you. Gentiles under the gospel of grace. And out of this has come the doctrine that has permeated much of the evangelical church world. To the point now, a lot of you young people, you're going to Christian college, and, and you, you're trying to figure out how do these Christians think that way and live that way, and they don't have a clue why they do. It's because it is so permeated, the gospel has been assumed to be simply this simplistic. Well, as long as you said a prayer, did you mean it? Did you mean it that day? I know you can't. Well, struggling, but did you mean it when you were 16 years old at that youth group? If you did, you are saved. Don't let the devil ever take that away from you. If you, at that moment, you might not have meant it two hours later when you're falling down drunk, but if that moment you meant it, you're saved. And so many of those people have never had a desire change within their hearts for God, for the Lord of Scripture, for righteousness. But don't worry about it. Don't worry. No, that's okay. It's okay. Because it's, many people can have Jesus as their Savior, even though He might not ever become their Lord. Oh, I mean, I can still go to heaven and do whatever I want with my sexual nature and with drugs and with business and cheating people and backbiting and hating God's people in the local church. I mean, I, I, I'm still going to heaven, right? And we call it cheap grace. Because it's not the grace of the gospel. The grace of the gospel is powerful. It's the grace of the kingdom of God coming and transforming persons. That whole two-phase 
can have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord is so mistaken. There has only been one essential message since Jesus, and it's the message today. It is one gospel of the kingdom and the rule and the reign of God. And all of those who are saved, who are thus in the kingdom, are in process called sanctification. They are in the process of the work of the kingdom of the Holy Spirit. They're in that realm and they're in the process of submitting to Him, the Lord, the King. And that's their walk. Okay, Just, just for a moment. For those who would even say, well, there's two kind of messages and there was the gospel of the kingdom and Jesus will preach it again one day in the future to Israel again, okay? Like in the millennium, he'll do that, okay? But until then, it's just the gospel of grace, which is something different. What did the apostles preach when Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended? This is what Luke lets us know about the early church. First, you remember Philip the deacon preaching over in Samaria. We read this in Acts chapter 8, verse 12. They believed Philip as he preached good news about what? The kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. Or in Acts 19.8, Luke summarizes Paul's preaching in the city of Ephesus this way. Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. It's here. It's here. Enter it. In Acts chapter 20, verse 25, Paul sums up his own ministry to the elders outside of Ephesus before I'm never going to see your face again. And he says it this way. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. That's his message. His ministry could be summarized as preaching the good news of the kingdom, the rule and the reign of God. And then at the very end of the book of Acts, Luke summarizes uh, Paul's preaching through Paul this way. Paul is in, he's technically in custody, but being able to live in his own quarters there in Rome. And Luke closes out his account this way. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So, just I'm going to take a moment just to be clear that in these last two weeks, I'm going to summarize four basic points about the kingdom of God that I already have said. Just say them again. When we talk about the kingdom of God, 
coming in the person of Jesus, we mean a realm, not a spatial realm. You don't need to go to Jerusalem or Mecca. Or if you lived in the 1990s, Toronto, Canada, airport vineyard. It is an invisible, non-physical realm that Jesus established. And real human beings, flesh and blood, are affected by it. And you see the effects. Just like a wind blows, you can't see the wind, you can see the effect. But Paul, Paul mentions the effects this way in Romans 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace. And here's an effect you see of joy in the Holy Spirit. So it is this invisible rule and reign. Secondly, it refers to God's reign savingly. Not His providential reign. There are those who are not being reigned over by God. This way. They're outside of the kingdom of God. It is His salvific, redemptive rule and reign over people who are being saved. To be in the kingdom of God is to be saved unto eternal life. And thirdly, as we saw last week, that kingdom came with Jesus and has remained very present, non-physical realm during this present evil age. It's here right now. And finally, to, to be in Christ is to be in the kingdom or to be in the kingdom of Christ. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 5.5. 5. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There's only one kingdom. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of Christ. To be in the kingdom of God is to be in the kingdom of Christ. Or Paul's very favorite term, right? You know his epistles? In Christ. Just those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, this is this mystical, spiritual, can't see it, non-physical, Spiritual reality, you have been put in Christ, is the same as being put into the kingdom of God. And to be in the kingdom bears evidences. Sometimes stronger than at other times. But the kingdom at its core, you can't see this. That person who got, just got transferred in the kingdom, you probably don't know it. God knows it. Look at that. It, it doesn't happen separately, logically, from being born again. That is the work of the kingdom. And that's something that's immaterial. 
It's something that a person hasn't even had time to repent from a particular lifestyle. Something happened in them. And it's deep down at the core of their soul. But unless God takes them home in the next 20 seconds, there's going to be evidences from the soul working out in their life. But the evidence at the soul level that one is in the kingdom is that that person, any of us wretched sinners, have come to love the king, to love him, to love him, to love the gospel. Say that same, mean the same thing. To love the good news that this is what's amazing about the gospel. I'm a sinner. I deserve wrath. And yet, because I've been plunged into the kingdom and the hearing of the good news of Jesus, of the kingdom of God, at the heart is, I love the good news that my God, the judge, reigns and I'm so happy about it. Because of all of that, what that king has done. Who he is. What that means for me who find myself believing in the gospel of the kingdom. To be in the kingdom of God is to have had the king by the power of the Spirit. So change your desires for him that you cannot habitually continue loving what you used to love. Sin. Even though you sin, it's different. It's different because you have tasted the goodness of the Lord, of the gospel of the kingdom, of God himself. And you'll never be the same if this has happened to you. This is the gospel of the kingdom. Yes, don't, you don't give, yes, there's those internal workings of what the king has done. Okay, just for time's sake, we're going to go there. Other than to say, yes, his life and his death has taken care of why any of us can come into the kingdom and be ruled by God this way as opposed to be ruled by God in eternal wrath. All of this is the gospel of the kingdom. And this is why the teaching. That one can have Christ as Savior, but not have Him as the one who reigns over their lives as Lord or King is not only unbiblical, it is damnable. It is utterly dangerous. And it is a doctrine of deception that is leading many to hell. And they will hear Jesus say, I never knew you. But I walked the aisle 
at that church that one morning and asked Jesus to come into my heart. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of unrighteousness, lawlessness. This is, it's funny, I'll talk about John MacArthur as if I'm talking about history. <laughs> I think he's about 80, still alive, but for the young people, they just, they don't know. So I'm going to bring back a time in my life. I remember in the late 80s, I wasn't that familiar with who Pastor John MacArthur down the 405 freeway was, but when he wrote this particular book in the late 80s, I remember it was really controversial in the church world and on the radio. Titled, The Gospel According to Jesus. And there's people saying, yes, it needs to be written. And other people are like, what are you doing? Heretic. Okay. Now, I agree with Mr. Pastor MacArthur, by the way, on this issue. Well, so at the core, what he was doing in that book was first documenting from books being published, so they're there in print, things that were being taught in conservative evangelicalism and particularly a strain of theology within the church that was proclaiming essentially you can have Jesus as Savior. It's not, I mean, you should, you should make him Lord, but... but this is the gospel. It has nothing to do whether there's any manifest change in your life ever for the next 50 years. And this was going over the radios through preachers like Mike Kokoros. I just pulled a few quotes from the book to give you a taste. Quotes that MacArthur would quote from that he's coming against. For instance, so... People within the church, ministers, pastors, theologians, were writing things like this. Repentance, quote, repentance is a change of mind about Christ. That's what it is. You didn't used to believe in Jesus, now you do. That's what the New Testament means by repentance. Another quote. No turning from sin is required for salvation. Another. Saving faith is simply being convinced or giving credence to the truth of the gospel. In other words, it's a, it's a confidence that Christ can remove guilt and give to you eternal life. That's it. It is not, though this would be a good thing for secondary Christianity, move on to that and graduate, but it is not a personal commitment to Him. Another. Christians may fall into a state of lifelong carnality. I wonder if the young people even know that word now. It used to be a big word in the 70s and 80s. Okay, it comes from the Latin flesh, okay? So in other words, it means they could, Christians, they may fall into a state of we don't mean lifelong living according to the flesh. In other words, just living like unbelievers for the next 40 years. And see, this is why there became, 
these teachings within the church of, quote-unquote, a carnal Christian. They're carnal Christians. These are super-duper Christians. They're just carnal here. Why? Because they both asked Jesus into their hearts. Here's another quote. Disobedience and prolonged sin are no reason to doubt the reality of one's faith. One more. Those who have once believed are secure forever, even if they turn away. Okay. So in my 37 years... As a, as a Christian, this teaching, and let me say it this way, because to say it bluntly, people get shocked. But the after effects and the residue of this teaching are everywhere still in the church today. When I was in seminary, I wrote a paper uh, on Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who used to be back in the 30s, I think started in the 30s, 40s, and into the 50s. He was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, which was a bedrock of many people coming out teaching this kind of Jesus Savior but not Lord kind of thing. Sperry wrote in his systematic theology this. The New Testament does not impose repentance upon the unsaved as a condition of salvation. Then you had Ryrie. Was his first name James? I think it was James. But the Ryrie Study Bible. We got lots of study Bibles today. But 30 years ago in the 80s, there was a few. There was the old Schofield Reference Study Bible. Then there was the Ryrie Study Bible. And in the early 80s, lots of people had that with notes, theology in it on pages constantly and propagating the same thing where the Ryrie Study Bible called repentance a false doctrine of faith when it is made a condition of salvation. Now just stop. Didn't say condition of justification. But a condition of salvation. Which clearly may include the resurrection, sanctification, the whole ball wax getting there. You can get it all without ever having repentance. The idea that they were driving home sincerely, thinking they're protecting the gospel, was to make sure that there is no necessary connection between saving faith and obedience to Christ. They found that dangerous. Here's a quote from the Rivalry Study Bible. It is possible, but miserable. I mean, don't recommend it. Okay. But it's possible to be saved. It's possible to be saved without ever making Christ Lord of your life. So, what they and many within the church are saying is that people can actually be presented 
with claims of Christ as ruler and Lord. That there's right and wrong and moral and immoral and He's the standard for it. Yes. And He wants to command you. Yes. But people can be presented with that as you preach Christ and they could say or mean in their heart, no. I don't want Him that way as Lord and King. I don't accept His claim on my life to control my sexual nature or my envy or my slander or my unforgiveness. Get the picture? We can go on and on. I don't want Him that way, and yet I'm still saved. Because I agree. Jesus is Messiah, died on the cross for sins. And I agree. He was raised from the dead. He's my Savior. And the result of this kind of teaching is the the mass of disobedient, nominal, in name only Christians. And they had a problem. And so you get these doctors because you had two categories. Mere believer, you got it. They signed the card, accepted Jesus, and he went through our assembly line of baptisms. And look at how many baptisms we got. So that, but it's five years in. They haven't been to church a long time. Look how they're living their life. Well, they accepted Jesus. He's the Savior. It's grace. That's a mere believer as opposed to a disciple. And discipleship programs grew up all over because it's just something different than normal Christian life. Now you've got to figure out how to disciple people. And you've got all kinds of discipleship programs and, and books. They're all going to heaven. They're all Christians. But there are different Categories, And we want to move the mere believer into stage two Christianity, if we can, is local churches. And what this popular evangelical theology has done at its core is to reduce saving faith to manageable human terms so that steps to conversion are possible without transformation of the heart. And that granting people assurance that they're going to heaven is possible without any evidence in them of authenticity. Now take, take that assumption of the American gospel now and now bring in Madison Avenue, marketing, Church growth movement in the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s. And then the, the, the seeker-sensitive movement. Because now we can manage this. We can get very persuasive speakers to sell you anything. And they can sell you by even getting your hardest friends, teenagers, to come and walk in an aisle. It's not too much. All they got to do... Say this prayer. You mix those two. There's a crisis in the American church. 
this de-supernaturalizing of conversion ruins real evangelism for so many of these people. They're almost unreachable because they have had shots injected into them that have inoculated them to the truth of who Jesus is. It gives assurance, false assurance, to millions, millions of persons who have never seen the glory of Jesus, who have not been born again, who don't have genuine saving faith. And that's why this very manageable, popular pattern of evangelism came about. I mean, we can mix Charles Finney in the early 1800s and his effect on, you put all these things together, get people to agree, get them to agree about the basics of Jesus Christ. He died, died for sins, rose from the dead. Ask him to sincerely ask him into your heart. Sign a card over here, over here, kind of get you baptized in the next month, and you're good to go. You're saved. And yeah, a lot of people had that experience, what he said, and they are saved. They're not saved because they did it. They're saved because Jesus saved them. But the danger is many of them are not at all saved. And they're told they are. And you wonder why so many people, yeah, I used to be a Christian. Oh, yeah, I was in evangelicalism. I went to that mega church down there. I went to that tiny little church over there. I did this, I did that. And they don't have a clue of the gospel. So let me, not quite close, but I'm going to read something from Dr. MacArthur. In his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, this is why he wrote it. This is the, the core Here's John MacArthur. I am convinced that the popular evangelistic message of our age actually lures people into deception. It promises a wonderful, comfortable plan for life. It obliterates the offense of the cross, though It presents Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. It says nothing of the small gate or the narrow way. Its subject is the love of God, but there is no mention of God's wrath. It sees people as deprived, not depraved. It is full of love and understanding, But there's no mention of a holy God who hates sin. No summons to repentance, no warning of judgment, no call for brokenness, no expectation of a contrite heart, and no reason for deep sorrow over sin. It is a message of easy salvation, a call for a hasty decision. This is not the gospel according to to Jesus. So let me just conclude this morning. Wrap it up. Say it this way. We are saved by Christ in His work 
totally for us and on our behalf. We are saved by grace. Something we cannot earn, cannot do, cannot pull any levers, cannot do a repentance in our life and therefore cause God to give it. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, even which itself is God's grace given it to us. Okay. Now, the effects of the kingdom bring obedience. But obedience to the king is not something that we then add on to faith. Obedience is the outgrowth of faith, of love for Jesus. Faith is not a simple mental agreement with or an assent to the facts of the gospel. It's not. That's essential, but it's not sufficient. You must have enough of the basic of the gospel. Okay, got that. I do believe that in my head. But at the core, saving faith is not only in the head, it is a heartfelt coming to Jesus Himself and resting in Him for what He has to offer. It's an act of of the heart that no longer, remember how John or Jesus in John puts it, it no longer hates the light. Something's happened. And therefore, it comes to the light. Because a new set of spiritual taste buds have been given to it. And now Jesus to them as Lord and King is the greatest news possible. Thank God I'm not God anymore. And I don't rule myself. Oh, help me, King Jesus. And therefore, obedience to Christ, obedience to the King is not something artificially added to faith. It's not some stage two kind of Christianity. It is what faith itself does. Because trust, faith, is the core of our being, our souls cleaving to Jesus, our King, our Savior, for everything. We need. And when that's happening in any of us sinners, that's the kingdom of God at work. That evidence that I just said there, that's what's happening in them, is evidence they have entered the kingdom of God. No wonder Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see, nor can you enter the kingdom of God. This is the good news of the gospel that our God reigns in Jesus Christ savingly over our lives, our souls, our sanctification, 
and thus our final glorification in the resurrection at the consummation of the kingdom is absolutely assured because you're in the kingdom forever. Oh, Jesus, our great King, I ask two things, that every soul in here come under Your rule, Your saving, merciful rule. And that You help every one of us here in Your kingdom with family and friends, people we work with, and whoever You give to us to encounter, to be clear with this gospel of the kingdom to the glory of your name. Amen.